0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth brings you quality hunting clothing and packs at a price you deserve. Check them out at huntworthgear.com. This episode, guys, is one I think is going to help a lot of people, uh, like myself, trying out new uh, food plot stuff. So we, after the podcast with Eric from Redline, we talked a little bit about the idea of taking a smaller property and making it a great property. Um, Mike from Domain helps us through like the trials and tribulations, where to start, what not to do, and where to plant what. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. And one of the things we talk about in here is the different kinds of seed and what they're best used for. And a lot of the things that come up is annuals versus perennials. And Lucky Buck has a perfect perennial uh, option for you. It's clover, alfalfa and chicory, and we'll talk about all those different ones uh, and how to use those. Uh, So you can check that out, luckybuck.com. Happy to be planting some of this up in our uh, UP property this year, but uh, thanks to the guys from Lucky Buck for, for that. Spartan Forge is another partner that we're working with this year. Spartan Forge is military technology for predictive deer movement. One of the things I like the most about Spartan Forge is the imagery. So, when you're looking for uh, the different terrains, like the different where different um, habitat types come together, uh, if you go back to one of the episodes we did with Parker McDonald, he talks about X marks a spot. The imagery, and there's an update coming this month from Spartan Forge to increase that. Uh, but where they really shine what their bread and butter is is using military technology to predict when and where the deer move and you can check them out at spartanforge.ai. You can use code bowhunter to save 25% if you want to check that out. And all of these partners are giving something away in our Patreon giveaway. And our patrons I gotta give some shout out. Steve Ferris, Jack Langlois, Nathan Golds, congratulations on uh, getting turkeys this season. Um, some of you guys have been out there killing it. Uh, Tim Gray is out there like every day on our Marco Polo group, uh, giving us live feed of the trials and tribulations. And then, uh, TJ down in, uh, in Ohio, uh, first year turkey hunting, missed a bird already. Uh, and Robbie's trying to get one for his buddy, Robbie Signer down in, uh, Coldwater, Michigan. Uh, they, they had some, uh, really close encounters, had a miss also this year. Uh, John's headed out tomorrow, um, hoping to uh, decap one with that new uh, Bear Alaskan. He's got that all set up for those Magnus Bullheads. Um, Super excited to bring that uh, to you as soon as we we get John out there hunting. Glad glad to see that. But Patreon is crowdfunding for creators. So basically, that helps us um, kind of bring you this show in the capacity that we do. um, And we try to give back as much as we can. It's basically... You know, you like what we're doing, you want us to continue doing it, and you help us out by making a donation, like 33 cents a day. Super easy. Uh, just go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. and we're giving away great stuff. Again, Huntworth, uh, rain gear and a pack, um, Lucky Buck, you can pick either that perfect perennial that we talked about, and you're going to hear, uh, you know, how to implement that in this podcast. Um Spartan Forge gives away a year membership to their service, and we got uh, some other friends. Zinger Fletchings, um, they give away. Uh, you know, you can choose. Uh, you tell them your arrows, and those are 3D printed, compression fit, no hassle fletchings. Steer incredibly well. John was skeptical. I shot them all last year, and uh, he's he's kind of on board. He's watching them steer those those bullheads, heads, those guillotine-type uh, heads, and uh, he's he's starting to come around. But uh, anyways, those are all things we give away, but also because of the support that we have received uh, with our friends from Bowhunter Planet and the Patreons, we're giving away a gearhead. So I've got a, a Gearhead T28, I believe it is, um, that we're going to be giving away also. So we do everything we can. Um, you know, you get a free subscription to Vitals Live to go and actually ask the questions to these guys we're having these webinars with Andy May, Greg Linsinger. Um We just did one with TJ Jordan on Turkey hunting. Um, Joe miles is coming up, um, you know, all different types of, of guys where you can just ask questions. Um, you get access to that. You get ad free podcasts. So um, there's a feed where you just, you subscribe to that feed and you can skip all the ads, all the, all that stuff. And um, all of that is available And another company that we're working with this year is the um, Adjustable Red Dot. So for guys like Uncle Frank, he just went down, he got that set up with Tim. Um, We had incredible feedback from that podcast, Um, but definitely check them out at AdjustableRedDot.com. And one of the things that we may have uh, undersold on that is the target acquisition. So when you're shooting target archery, it's very easy to um, take your time, um, let down, Make sure your level, your, your bubble is level. Make sure that your peep is indexed, All of that sort of stuff. But in a hunting situation, um, sometimes hap- things happen really fast, and that's not uh, not always in the forefront of your mind. Or you have to make a decision quickly. And uh, one of the things is the target acquisition with one of those red dots. If you've ever shot one on a pistol, or if you guys are turkey hunting right now, um, you know a lot of guys will run those red dots. On their shotguns for that very reason. Pull up, you're on them, and um, so another reason to check out the adjustable red dot site. Just wanted to throw that out there. Um, but this podcast, I think, helped me a ton. I got to ask questions from the patreons, and uh, I think it's really going to help you guys uh, enjoy the episode. All right, everybody, Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Banging out as much content as I can before I go on vacation. John's working on selling his house. He's over. Uh, I went over there today. He's he's painting doors, and there's a trailer full of gross stuff in the driveway. Uh, doesn't sound like any fun, so I'd much rather be uh, here talking with uh, Mike from Domain today. Um, and we're going to talk uh, food plotting for idiots um, and uh, he, he's got one of the biggest ones in front of him right now when it comes to uh growing things. Um, <laughs> so it's going to be really easy for you guys to follow along. Um, Mike, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I, I enjoy conversations like this, and uh, I, I'll fit right in as far as the idiots. So, I everything I know I learned by doing it the wrong way first. So I can apply some of that and, and hopefully help some people along the way, but I'm looking forward to chatting with you and I appreciate having me on.
1: Perfect. So, so tell us a little bit about your history and, uh, you know, your hunting history. What, what is your, your background? I think a lot of times when we think of food plot guys, we think, oh yeah, he must have, you know, hundreds of acres of corn and he, he yeah. he, he's, he grew up doing it. He's, he's a, you know, he's the expert, uh, on this. And, uh, and, and so, 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 tell me that's the case, right? Absolutely. I'm the best food
2: bot there ever was. I know everything about everything.
1: And if you don't agree with me, I don't like you.
2: Um, no, I, I've i been hunting my entire life. I grew up in a hunting family and just fell in love with it. And I I, I own a, a really big piece of property. It's four acres that I hunt. Um, so, that's that's who we cater to. We have a lot of fun with it. But I, I've been hunting for... Sh- Almost thirty years now. I've been planting food plots in one way or another for the last fifteen or so, and most of them, at least the first ten years, were without equipment. So that was kind of a fun application that I think a lot of people can relate to. And I've been—I cut my teeth in the outdoor industry about ten years ago, um, working in this category of food plots and minerals and attractants, and and really was a sponge. Um, I've I've been able to work with a bunch of agronomists and growers and planters and all sorts of things to help kind of formulate my vision and our goals with the types of products that we release and use all designed for, you know, obviously for deer to be attracted to them and those things, the success in the woods, but also designed to be easier to plant and work with in adverse conditions and without equipment and shady areas on those small hunt plots and properties that I've grown up on. So Uh, Most of what I know, I dug out of the dirt and I learned it the hard way. I have failed every which way you can when it comes to planting food plots. And I've been able to learn from those experiences and apply it and help people hopefully avoid some of those pitfalls when they're planting. So I've been around a really long time and I really, really enjoy it. It's what I love to do. It's the easiest and quickest way to, to change a property, whether it's, an acre or a hundred acres is through food and through habitat improvement and things of that nature. So it's what we love to do. We're a family owned business here in Wisconsin. So just across the pond from you and uh, this is what we know This is what we love. And uh, we really enjoy working with um, our customers and clients and helping them, you know, improve their property.
1: So what's the biggest for, for for guys that are just starting out or guys that um, maybe Food plotting has left a bad taste in their mouth because they've had these failures, and um, one of the things that I say, and and we'll get into it, but like you know, our listeners know we've got uh, 240 acres in the UP. We've attempted a food plot two different times um, with strange uh, results, I, I guess I would say, um, sure. but uh, circumstances were 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 really odd. There, but I think I've said that I would rather um, not put the work in food plotting and fail than put all the work in and fail. (laughs) (laughs) If that makes sense, I'd rather fail on my own than taking all this other time uh, to fail. So, what are some of the biggest things that you see? uh, I'm going to change your mind as failures uh, that guys right out of the gate will help them.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, there's a few. One, food plot seeds are not magic. You can't just throw them into a an unprepared or unready area and expect it to work. So I think that's the first thing. Um, there is some work that's involved. However, if you can match seed type with application, that's the biggest issue we have with most food plots failing, whether it's your soil is has a low pH, so it's acidic. It can't really support plants and growth we can improve it if it is that way Um, or just trying to plant a a plant variety the wrong way perhaps so a lot of it where i started was kind of no-till throw and grow kind of rake and shake type of uh, food plotting and that requires a certain type of seed there are certain seeds that are better able to handle shade and um that can work their way into the soil and plant plant themselves naturally, things of that nature. So I think matching the seed with the application, we can talk about what that means later. Um, but also the fact that I'm a firm believer that the harder you work, the luckier you get. There's a reason that the same people shoot deer every single year, typically. It's also the ones that, that typically put the work in. And I think in this category, like others, the more you know, the better off you are because you might avoid some pitfalls. You don't bury your seed. You'll check your pH, figure out what it is, improve it with lime, use the right seed variety given the application, um, just simple things of that nature. And then also when to plant certain plants can help benefit you too, just by how plants grow and work and, and their maturity levels and how that attracts deer. So I'd be curious to learn more about your failure to understand why so then we could provide a solution so then you could then put the same work in and get a better result
1: well the one thing is we we went in and we went down in this really low-lying area this swamp and we uh figured out what would grow best i think and we we planted some clover and we're like okay some clover is going to be be great for us and it was just an unfortunate set of circumstances. It's a cedar swamp. Ours was logged, I don't know, probably 20 years ago now, but um, sure. then it was re-logged uh, maybe five years ago or so. And it was right up against this really dense cedar swamp of the neighbors, like right on the property line. And we're thinking, okay, we can draw them out of that thick stuff. It's right at this corner. It's going to be perfect. Brought down a four-wheeler and a spring drag. Um worked for hours and hours, pulled out, you know, basketball size boulders, bigger than that, probably dug out everything, planted our seed. We go back in, in October, November in the dark, you know, it's our, our property, but now something is, something's wrong when I walk down in there. Like I don't recognize uh, any of this. And what had happened was the neighbors clear cut all of their cedar. They didn't select (coughs) cut it. They didn't do anything. And so I'm walking along and now I'm in uh, calf deep clover, but it doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of clover as being the clover that I have in my, my yard. That's, you you know, maybe shoot top of my boot or something like that. I'm going, what in the world is going, what is happening? Well, we put all this food down in there for them. And then they've got all the cedar tailings that they can eat and so it just did it it was useless at that point interesting Um, yeah like i said a very unfortunate set of circumstances and then up in our our bigger fields we did uh kind of the same thing but they were a little bit more in the sun and we didn't have any cages or anything so there's a large density of deer but it's a very 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 big woods behind there and there's uh, you know, these are big woods deer that are like migratory, mm-hmm. not a lot of ag around there. So we didn't put any cages. So I don't know if they just ate it down to nothing. I mean, if you look on sure. the, um, like, uh, Spartan Forge maps, you can zoom right in and you can see right where we did the food plot. I mean, you can see that yep. the, the soil is different. The, the, you can see different grasses and, you know, that it looks different. Um, but. It, what did you plant in that field? That was the same. It was It was just, just the clover. We, we went to, and we didn't go to uh, you know Whitetail Institute or Killer Food Plots or Domain or anything. We went down to our grain yard and we said, sure. what grows in this area at this time of year easily? And it grew like wildfire down in the swamp. It but, can handle moisture. That was a good selection
2: for that area, for
1: but, sure. But nothing was eating it because they yeah. had everything else they they needed sure. that's the best that i can because it grew wonderfully um yeah but that's the best i can come to an assumption and then it was like you know it's it's a seven hour drive to get up there so we we there the maintenance on it was not you know we weren't yep. doing anything to we we wanted that set it and forget it type scenario yep. and, and kind sure. of what you were saying is like how the guys that put in work um get get luckier well i i've found for myself that you know, around here on, on public land or whatever, I can spend all of that, you know, that same seven hours that it just takes me to drive up there. <laughs> I can, I can do a lot of scouting in seven hours or 14 hours. Cause I still got to get back. Right? Yep. And so it's, it, there's a balance there. Yeah. Those long commute
2: properties are, can be tricky just from a, like you said, you're going to commit 14 hours of drive time to get there. So you kind of want to have that place dialed in. Hopefully nowadays you can use some cell cams perhaps to um, help you strategize, if you will, as far as you know, committing to that. All right, I'm gonna make the seven-hour tribe because my big sexy field up in the sun is it's popping right now. I mean, those deer are in it, I'm gonna go capitalize on it. Or my hot chick plot back in the swamp is it's time, it's you know, early October, they're looking for those greens and they're in there so those cell camps can be really great for those absentee properties, if you will. Cause that's a heck of a, to your point. So I'm lucky. I, I, most of my hunting is done in my house because of that same reason I can get into my stand in two minutes instead of two hours or seven hours. So, um, but, but yeah, I think, I think there's some, some things you can do to play around with that property to help manipulate deer activity. Um, typically plant maturity dates, trigger deer in there eating them uh, which is interesting but it's something you can play around with so you could almost go into all right I'm going to plant big sexy which is our 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 one of our best hunt over plots and I'm going to plant it August 7th or August 5th knowing that I've got four plant varieties in there they're going to mature at different stages anywhere from 60 to 90 days and those differing maturity levels are going to increase consumption October 30th november 15th and kind of kind of hone in on some key dates based on plant maturity and maybe make your drive more worthwhile so there's certain things you can play with just based on what you're planting that might help trigger deer activity almost like turning the spin cast feeder on
1: yeah so um let's back it up just a little bit because the listener now is going like hey i got i got the same four acres that you've got or maybe i've got 10 acres and um, I'm, I've got ag around me and, and how do I, I've got these deer that are just moving through my property. So I'm not, I don't, I I guess they maybe don't think that they have enough acreage or any features to hold the deer there, but they're just, just kind of moving through and maybe it's before daylight or just after daylight or uh, just after dark. and, And they're trying to figure out, you know, what do I do? What do I plant? How do I plant? What would be effective um, for something like that?
2: Yep. So you explained my property.
1: (laughs) Honestly, I have four acres. Um, We
2: kind of live up on top, and then it's a valley with some little ridges there, and it's between a large chunk of state land and egg, literally sandwiched in between it. And we've done some. We've got a, a perennial food plot in up top kind of that year round, create habits. We've got okay, those. What, what,
1: what, so you're, remember, this is the idiot food plotting podcast. Yep, so what yep. is perennial? <laughs> what is Yeah, so we
2: we like to plant, there's perennials and annuals. Perennials are your clovers, your chicories. Plants are going to come back year after year. So for us, it's we, we've got some unique names to our mixes. Comeback Kid and Hot Chick are our two. And we plant those in the spring in Wisconsin, Michigan, get those roots established, get the plants developed so your deer and turkeys can eat high protein forage all spring, summer, and fall. So we have that established year round that creates habits. Deer eat up to six pounds of food per day. So they're constantly searching for food. And if you can provide it and continue to provide it, it creates a habit. That's why there's deer trails because they do the same thing every day if you allow them to. And for us, Um, we wanted to keep the fridge full. That's a a, a kind of a comment I always use. If the fridge is empty at your house and you get home tonight, you're going to go somewhere else to eat. Your land is no different. If the deer pass through it and there's nothing to eat, they're just going to pass through it and do nothing else. So we always want to make sure the fridge is full 365 days a year. And our perennials, our clovers, our chicories, our plants that continue to to handle the, the graze but provide forage help do that. And then down below where I hunt, um, which is kind of the natural travel corridor, especially when we get into October, November, December, when they're moving from big chunk of woods through my property into ag. That's where I plant my my hunt over plots, if you will. And for us, it, for me, it's it's all hand tools. It's a it's kind of a steep ravine. I have to get down, and I've cut down twelve trees now, um, positioned east west to get as much sun in there as I can. No matter what you're planting, sun is still critical. And I went in there with a hand rake and a landscaping rake and put in the time. I just roughed up the soil, removed weeds and debris and leaves and roots and all the things, and then planted a mix we call no BS. Um, we call it that because um, it's just kind of your no BS hump plot. It's, it's got rape and um, radish and chicory and clover and ar- Arctic forage oats. It's got a little bit of everything. And that provides that green forage for the fall and winter. So I've got kind of a plant diversity there to make sure that no matter what time of year it is, I've got food to continue to instill in those deer that, hey, there's, there's a spot here to stop on the way to, to the destination food source. And that gives me my hunting opportunity. And a lot of the times what you're going to do, you're not going to feed hundreds of deer every day in a little four acre property. You physically can't. So what you do is you plant these, I call them transition plots, like we're talking about, where I've got deer passing through here, then they move on to the next best thing or more food in this case. What can I do to get them to stop and hang out and graze? So that's what I've done. And then I've also done we call it hinge cutting, where um I'm not an expert in it. So I don't want to provide a ton of um data to get people out there and messing around with saws if they don't know what they're doing, but it's a way to pr- provide more bedding on my property. So I've got a couple of doe families now that actually live on my property, which again, attracts more deer, um, as they're in feeding. So every little habitat trick provides a better habitat for those deer to call home and the rest kind of takes care of itself. Um, cause they, they work through their stomachs and then during hunting season, the bucks techni- te- typically are either looking for food or looking for does. And if you have food and does, you're going to have the bucks. So on small properties, they're my favorite. They're easiest to manipulate and easiest to quickly change um, because of of what you can do with food.
1: So a couple things on that. One, it, for those uh, areas that you're talking about where they're deer moving from, from A to B, how has that changed the deer behavior is, I mean, are you creating a place that they go to eat or are they, that they feel safe? And then how are you seeing that with uh, both types of pressure? So you're up against state ground. Uh, Obviously you're going to have, as the season comes in and the closer you get to rut and then Wisconsin being like Michigan with the crazy uh, rifle hunting. Yep culture you're going to have tons and tons more guys in the woods coming up to your property um and then pressure from yourself maybe you maybe your family who, whoever else is hunting these um how is that changing you i mean your uh, food plots and the way that you've manipulated this property how has that changed the deer behavior
2: Yeah. So my, my property is a little different in that the state land I'm up against is a kind of a state park. So the season's really small and the area up against where I live is you can't hunt it. You can only hunt it across the river. So for me, I can manipulate a little bit better because I don't have pressure right up against the boundaries. However, to your point, when the orange army kind of kicks in November 16th, my deer numbers double or triple because they know where there's food and safety and the things. And with me, I pressure is key. However, pressure is different everywhere. Um, and what I mean by that is urban deer, rural deer, hunted deer, they all kind of act differently towards it. Um, and for us, what I've found is I hunt, I hunt a North wind because that's blowing out of, you know, the sanctuary, if you will, or the, the state park, or I'll hunt in a blind where it's you know I'm I'm kind of covered up I can sneak in and out. To your point, and it's a great point. Pressure impacts deer activity, deer movement, and if you're not at least aware of it and how you're you know impacting those deer, it can be a game break or a game breaker, right? I mean, if if you're in there hunting every single day and pounding it, pounding it, pounding it, it, the deer are going to react to that. There are studies that for hundreds of years that have proven that. Um, so. And food is one of those things where, you know, you've got to be aware of the type of pressure that you're, you know, putting on those deer. So I'm a little lucky in that sometimes urban deer feel less pressure. And what I mean by that is they're just used to noises of people and things. So you're going to still get those random doe families that are in and out. But if you're trying to shoot a, a buck, then I'm always watching my wind and I'll just hunt a north wind or a west wind because that's blowing out of sanctuary oral hunt in the box blind where, um, we just have a, we didn't buy a $5,000 box blind. You know, we built a box blind with some windows and just holds in scent and noise and you can access in and out. Cause when you're hunting food, you're probably going to be wanting to go in or go out when there's deer present or around. However, these little transition plots, I tell you what, the beauty of them is the deer don't stay in them all night like they will a cornfield. They'll stage in them and they'll head to the egg. So a lot of times these little transitions are better, less pressured, because if you go in, in the morning, the deer aren't to them yet. They're still an egg headed back to bedding. Or if you go in in the evening to sit, they're going to hit your spot, then go to egg, and then you can slip out. So I think these, these miniature little microplots help you pr- pressure your deer less, if that
1: makes sense. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that's that's probably not. It, you probably can't answer it, but you can tell me uh, from your experience, yeah, um, on these small plots, what is the smallest effective size that you're, you're you've seen? And then yeah. uh, on the other side of that, again, from the food plotting for dummies, or I guess this would be maybe geography for dummies, like when you say a quarter of an acre, what does that equal in square yards or uh, dimensionally.
2: Yeah. So um, I always say you got to take it with a little bit of grain of salt, but no plot is too small. If you're providing food of some sort, it's always going to benefit you. Now, if it's your property where you've got a ton of deer, um, you're going to want to plant like a clover, or something that can continue to handle the graze, or they're going to just mow it down to the dirt. But I I don't think there's a plot that's too small. I mean, the one in my woods, I'm calling a corn raker, but it's not. It's smaller. Both of mine are probably smaller. So I've just had to be very strategic in what I'm planting because I've got a lot of deer in there grazing. I need something that continues to kind of regrow itself. So um, I don't want to ever say anything's too small because I know guys that will plant 10 by 10 foot food plots. And if that's what you have, I mean, it's only going to benefit you. Now, as far as like size-wise, the, the simplest way to kind of describe it, if you will, um, a football field is an acre. So a quarter of an acre uh, is obviously a quarter of a football field or 11,000 square feet, roughly. An acre is roughly 44,000 square feet. So um, I always try to, instead of throwing numbers out there, if you told me what a 11,000 square feet, I'd go, yeah, I know I had no idea how what, what size that is, right? I'd have to, I'd go to my house and say, okay, my house is 2,000 square feet. So it's five times the size of my house. Um, or in my vision, it's like, all right, a half acres, half a football field. It's in my head and say, okay, like I can I can grasp that concept a little bit better. So like I said, my 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 food plot down below my house is probably an eighth of an acre, honestly. Um, and the one behind my house maybe a little bit bigger. And in both those scenarios, I've, I've mixed annuals and perennials. So your clovers, your chicories, your forage oats, your rapes, your radishes, because they mature at different stages. They provide different types of food, which triggers deer to eat at different times. And they can kind of regrow, regenerate themselves. So as they get grazed down, they grow back. As they get grazed down, they grow back. And that's kind of what you have to do to keep those deer interested. Deer grazers, six pounds of food per day. So... Um, and if you can, I mean, up in the UP, you can feed too, right? Or is it just off season? Is it during season or just
1: off? So during the season, yes. And then there's a, I think it goes until the middle of May, you can do a supplemental feed. Okay. Uh, but there's rules on that where it has to be f- this far away from a road and this far away from. Gotcha. Man, you know.
2: So in those scenarios, these play well together.
1: Um, honestly, they do because
2: it's hard to feed consistently without there being gaps in your program. If you pour a bucket of corn out, come back three days later, was there two days of no corn and one day of no corn? How do you know? And the food plot is something that continually provides food, even when you're not present. So it's really, really important to integrate into that program, even if you're feeding. I am. I support feeding 100%. I support attracting deer, however you can, to provide them what they need and also to help you be more successful hunting. But if you can do it, both ways, I think you absolutely should.
1: Uh, you never want that cover to be bare. So from a, a, another, I guess, way to look at it, let's say that you had that 10 acre property, or let's say that you've got a 40 acre property. And I, I guess when you're, yeah. uh, when you look at, or when you listen to guys talk about they want to buy this lease, or they want to buy this, uh, you know, this hunting camp or, or whatever. And it says this much hardwood, this much tillable, blah, 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 blah. Um, for you from the work that you've done and kind of what you've seen, is it better to have one giant field that's planted in food plot or deer attractant or however you want to call it, or, you know, kind of do a little bit of that. And then I have a whole bunch of little kill plots around it. The reason that I ask is I I picture in a scenario of where you have multiple guys on a property that maybe can only withstand so much hunting pressure, you know, like Mm -hmm. you get a 40 or 80 acre lease with, you know, four of your buddies makes it, makes it affordable. You got Mm -hmm. one big food plot. And that's where all the deer, that's where you see all the deer and you go back to the guys that are, you know, from the public land standpoint or the big buck, you know, hunter standpoint, there's guys that sit on a field edge and see, you know, 10, 15 deer way over there every night. And think, man, I hope they come over here or there's the guys that are going out and and looking for them. And there's going to be, obviously there's going to be people that want to be where the deer are and that, that big Plot is gonna kind of. Yep.
2: Yeah, we don't like to let it happen. We like to make it happen, and what I mean by that is, oftentimes that big food source is where you're going to see the deer. However, it's never typically where you actually kill the deer because of how they access and how they use it. So, say you had a, a 40 acre lease, just for simple math, and you had 10 acres that were tillable, and and of that, say there was a six, seven, eight acre old egg field and some other additional. What you could always do is you could stage like a, we'll call it a a destination food source. You know, that big field we speak of and plant that all in something. Whether you plant it all in clover, you plant it all in corn and beans and clover, whatever you want to do, that destination plot where you've got tons and tons and tons of food that you're going to help support all your deer. And then from there you create, your transition or staging blocks. so not only one person can hunt, but four people can hunt based on kind of location and wind, the direction, and whatnot. And that's how that's how you direct traffic. That's how you you know help these deer move into the food, and you can actually hunt them and shoot them. Um, so I we like to break it up and and kind of for not force their hand, but to some degree try to determine or predetermine how they're going to work their way into the destination food source and create smaller transition food plots in and around that to kind of force them through a, a gap or a runway or what have you past the stand. So um, I'm not a huge fan, just a big block of here's my 10 acre food plot. Good luck. Uh, we, we like to try to have a little bit more strategy involved if the goal is to, to harvest deer. Um, just based on how they operate. I, I've sat on big destination food plots plenty of times and seen tons of deer, but unless you manipulate where they're going to move or how they're going to move, it's, I mean, it's a shot in the dark if you're going to have something in range. So um, definitely, definitely like to break it up. We've got a, a concealment mix. It grows 10, 12 feet tall. It's called incognito. And we'll use that to create barriers and walls and kind of force deer into different areas And and that's also important, too, to diversify the food you're offering. And if you plant everything in the same thing, you don't have any plant diversity. So you're either you got all or nothing at that point. So by breaking it up to your point in different types of plant varieties, you've got different food sources maturing at different times. You're going to create that year round food, uh, which is going to create better hunting, better habitat, more deer numbers, healthier deer better success rates, all the things.
1: So going back to the, the guy that's just starting out and you know, one of the things I was going to say is when you talk about manipulating deer movement in and around a large destination food source like that, that gets uh, super intimidating, right? Because there's the, one of our (laughs) Patreons, uh, Edwin, he, plants the most difficult thing in the world to say mystic mythicanthus, <laughs> <No, I am. laughs> What? The, oh. that stuff, right? Yeah. But 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 for a guy that's just starting out and you you say, okay, well you look and you read and you YouTube and you see all this stuff and it, it looks super cool. Um but then you're like, I can't even, you know, grow tomatoes in my backyard. How am I supposed to do this one weekend or two weekends a month, go up there, make sure that something's growing and now we need to figure out how to screen it, and you get the somewhat analysis paralysis, right? So yeah. for the, the 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 layman, for the, the 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 black thumb guy who can't grow anything, yeah. where should somebody start and prioritize their their time for that uh, instant gratification, right? Of like, oh my god, I just grew something, and maybe a deer would like to eat it.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, start by determining the location. Sometimes it's set forth. You you have an opening in the woods. so That's what I'm going to go with. So I've got my 40 acre piece. I've got a destination egg field, the farmer plants or whatever. And I've got my opening in the woods that, you know, is between bedding and food. So I've determined my location. Obviously you need to figure out how you're going to get in and out of it, but I'm going to kind of let you determine that. And I'm going to focus just on the food. First thing I do is check your pH. The pH level is the acidity of the soil it is going to help determine your success, regardless of what you plant. Um, Seven is neutral. That allows plants to absorb all the nutrients, whether it's in the soil or the fertilizer you put down. If your pH is below a seven, you can apply lime to the soil to help improve it or neutralize it. So the first thing I do is test your pH. It is the gateway to your success. You can do it via a do-it-yourself soil test kit, Or you can send it into like a state lab and have them do a comprehensive test. That's where I would start. Very, 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 very simple and very easy to then help your soil improve by applying lime. From there, I would, depending on equipment, the next step is remove competition, debris, and anything that's going to get in the way of your seed hitting the soil. So that's where your work comes in, your hard work. If you don't have, you know, a tractor, uh, something to do it for you, that's where the blistered hands come in. It, it's, there's really, without equipment, no easy way to do it, um, but you can do it with a garden rake, a, a leaf rake, a landscape rake, whatever, and just rough up that soil. From there, you have two options. Um, you can go right ahead and plant when you're ready at that point, or you can rough it all up and then kind of get it ready, go home, come back in a couple of weeks, and you're probably going to have some weeds that have germinated. Anytime we rough up and disturb the soil, weeds are going to grow. So, you, have, you have, like I said, you have your two theories. Rough it up, plant it, come back, and you're going to have your plants, which are good, competing with weeds, which, again, not the end of the world. You've, you've got something going. Or you rough it up, let those weeds germinate, come back in a couple of weeks, you can then spray them with like a glyphosate or Roundup, something to kill those weeds. As soon as that dries, so 24 hours, you could then broadcast your seeds. Those small seeds in a mix of like clovers and chicories and rape seeds and radishes and oats will work their way into the soil. You don't have to cover them; a rain will do that. But those dead plants will also help kind of protect those weeds or those seeds and let them germinate. So you've got some options. It doesn't have to be difficult, honestly. It can be as simple as rough the ground, broadcast seed, as long as the seed you're using is easy to work with, um, like a, a chicory, a lot of varieties of clover, a lot of different types of rape and radish. Radish is one of my absolute favorites because it's so easy to work with. Um, it'll grow in the, the crack of a sidewalk. So you've got some different plant varieties that can help encourage success just based on using them opposed to some others. Um, and then every year, typically I add to it. Okay, I I had a rake and I had a a jug of no BS. I raked it up in the woods on May 5th and I broadcast and it turned out pretty good. Um, The next year, okay, I throw down some pelleted lime, I raked that in. I I used fertilizer this time around and I broadcast my seed and worked even better. The next year, I so every year we add to it based on the feedback that our plants gave us. If they're not growing why? Is it too shaded? Did I not give them fertilizer? Is my pH too low? Did mother nature just not provide rain kind of figure out what that is and then apply it to the next year. So food plotting is one of those things where it's like hunting in general, you can do everything right and everything goes wrong and you can do everything wrong and everything goes right. So you have to kind of go into it with a little bit of willingness to fail and, and willingness to learn. And then every year it's going to get better. And, Typical typical progression is, I tried food plotting, I hated it, it didn't work. And then you kind of say, well, maybe you should try this based on kind of your past experience. They try and it's like, oh, that worked out pretty good. How can I make it bigger? Okay. So, and then every year it's like, I want to add more and more and more and more, just because you see the benefit. Once you kind of have that aha moment, the light bulb kind of goes on, you figure out what happened incorrectly the first time and apply it to the second time. So, um, I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but I love to talk about
1: it. So sure. And and, and in that scenario, there's a few questions that arise, right? So first question being, when are you planning? You said May 5th and a lot of those things are things that from a non food plotting or from a, from a guy who looks at things, um, you know, casually or whatever, Yeah, there's when you talk about radishes and rapeseeds and all that sort of stuff, I think of those as the colder weather type type stuff. So planting them in May, is there a problem? How are you figuring out when to do that? And then one of the main things that that came up, and I want to talk about shade and sun in a little bit later here, but is now it sounds like there is like a big problem with uh, fertilizer and glyphosate getting them or, you know, uh, just even being available and the cost and all that stuff from a, from a hobby guy. Um, now I'm going to spend a hundred dollars for a half a gallon of roundup or something. Um, so is there ways around that? Are there other things? Is it necessary, but figuring out, you know, when are you doing this work? Are you replanning? Are you overseeding? Are you, you know, kind of from that perspective?
2: Perfect. Yeah. So, I break up into two planting seasons, your spring and your fall. It's harder to say a certain date because normally I've already planted some of my spring plots and this year I've got snow on the ground still. So we need soil temps to rise. But so if we have spring and fall. Normally in the spring, we plant our clovers and our chicories, our perennials that come back year after year, like to get those established in the spring. In the fall or say July, August time frame, we plant our annuals that are kind of your once and done, your radishes, your rapes, your colder season food. And then I break it down even more to shaded food plots get planted in the spring when there's less canopy to, you know, block the sun. So my shaded plots go in as soon as I can, because even the most shade tolerant plants, your chicories or clovers need photosynthesis to grow strong roots, develop stems and kind of give them that foundation to be successful once the canopy develops. So very simply put, April, May is when I typically plant those spring food plots, my perennials, my clovers, my chicories, and anything that's shaded, whether it's a logging road or a a backwoods hunt plot. And then in the fall, I typically plant my my radishes, my rapes, things of that nature. Um, They're gonna grow much faster. So those maturity levels are perfect kind of coming into your hunting season. Um, you get some other questions in there too that I've been at. Oh, the fertilizer. One. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple things and I'm glad you brought it up because we're up against it right now with availability, but also cost doubling, tripling in some cases. And one of the neat things about planting, we've got a mix called hot chick, um, clovers and chicories, basically what it is, but it's plant varieties that don't require a ton of nutrients because they fixate their own once they get going. And from a maintenance standpoint, um, you can maintain them without using Roundup. So go in, rake it up, scrape it up, get those seeds established. As they grow, you're going to have weed competition that's inherent. However, you can go in with a a weed whip, if you will, nip, nip the weeds down. And that actually helps the clover and chicory regrow or regenerate itself. It likes to get its haircut, quote unquote, and it'll come back thicker and stronger. So it helps suppress and suffocate those weeds out, saving you money and Roundup. Um, and then every time you kind of do that, it keeps those plants healthy and growing and then they fixate nitrogen. So they don't really need a ton of additional fertilizers. And then plant varieties like radishes. Again, I keep saying it, but I love that, that plant variety because it kind of eco tills the soil for you. And with that, it mines nutrients. So it pulls up phosphorus and potassium from the depths and helps kind of feed the upper level of your soil. So Without requiring a ton of nutrients or fertilizer put down, it helps mine its own and bring it back up. So what people can do sometimes is plant your clovers and chickers in the spring. They fixate nitrogen. They kind of create their own nutrients. You could work them into the soil over years and then plant, you know, your radishes later on that are going to eat the nitrogen and give back phosphorus and potassium. So you can use plants to feed your soil instead of using your checkbook um, to feed the plants. So there's a, they can get really complex if you want it to, but at the end of the day, your perennials are a great way to avoid glyphosate because you can mow them and trim them. And they're going to fight the weeds on their own. And plants like radishes can be really, really good for feeding your soil, growing your plants without pouring tons and tons of money in fertilizer. Down.
1: Okay. And so that's probably a good answer to this question, but so one of our patrons, Alex, Wants to plant fall, you know, kind of hunt over stuff in a kind of a larger scale. But he's saying, what can you plant in the summer that, you know, so he's not just letting weeds go rampant? So, what you're talking about, that clover chicory is a perfect. What I would do.
2: Yeah, I would plant like a a clover chicory mix in the spring. It's going to feed your deer 100%, and you can mow it to kind of keep weeds at bay and suppress weeds. But then if you want to transition into a fall hunt plot, tilling that into the soil. So your clover and chicory fixates nitrogen, which is the number one nutrient your fall plots are going to want. So it's a green fertilizer, or a green manure, if you will, that's going to feed the soil. You're going to plant your fall plots, your, your brassicas, so your turnips, your radishes, your rape, your kale, what have you. Those are going to feed off that clover. So it can be a really,
1: really good way to feed deer A, feed your soil B. So in that scenario, um, when would you be doing that, A? So I know that you'd say dates, but we're just talking Midwest here uh, yeah. in the fall, kind of the yep. temperature regulates, I'd, I'd say. But then uh, on another kind of side note, it, it just kind of popped in my head. I never really thought of it, but let's just say that you have this three-acre destination food plot of clover and chicory and these deer have been eaten there all year and then you just pull the rug right out from under them and till it under i mean doesn't that piss off the deer and kind of disrupt things so <laughs> first of all i'm gonna do the timing
2: um timing wise i would try to plant first part of may here get those clovers in give them time to grow and and provide food all summer and then on the flip side i would look to plant the first weekend in august just to throw a date at you, because that allows plants to mature at the the perfect timing in the north for August, September. With that said, your fall planting window is 4th of July to Labor Day and beyond for some plants. So you got a lot of time there. I just kind of picked my favorite. And then on the flip side, yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, um, you would leave some of that clover for a variety of reasons. I think clover is over overlooked for a fall hunt plot i mean my clover is green in december in wisconsin underneath the snow so that adds a lot of value and and yeah completely pulling the rug out from under them in august might disrupt them for a bit but as soon as those really fast growing annuals start to grow they're gonna be right back because as those plants grow the deer that's a, a really high level of nutrition a growing plant provides a ton of protein so if it was me and I had this three acre plot you're talking about, an acre of it would stay in clover, possibly the perimeter or however you wanted to work it. Um, but it can work both ways. But I would always, I don't like to leave my cover bare ever. So I would i would leave some of it in clover, allowing the rest of it to grow. But as soon as those, those annuals with rain and warm temps, you're going to get germ in probably three to four days. Um, and once it gets cooking, it's going to grow pretty rapidly and you're going to have deer in there consistently throughout the summer and fall but um i don't know if that answers your question or not
1: <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's perfect and then so let's say that you that you've done all this work and you don't maybe have all of that equipment but you're still trying to do a a larger section and you've got it you know maybe you run it a piece of equipment in the spring and you put down your clover and you said okay we're going to this is what we're going to, we're going to ride this out for, for this year. And then we'll see what happens. And in then in the next year, um, as you get into that August, you know, Labor Day type scenario, um, you know, people always talk about going in and overseeding or now you're just throwing something. You talked earlier about, you know, seed to soil contact and, you know, making sure mm-hmm. that, that you're, uh, putting the right things in at the right time. Like, let's talk about that a little bit for, for, for that maybe if you don't have the equipment to to till yeah. it all under
2: it can work well, really well um there's a couple of ways to make it work better uh like if you could roll it or drag it or mow it just to create a little better opportunity for seed to get to the soil and then seed selection if you're overseeding into clover and you want some some fall fall plant varieties to grow like a, a winter or a fall rye can work really well in that scenario because it It can compete with anything and it doesn't require a whole lot to to grow from a shade standpoint to a competition standpoint. Or I'm going to say the word again, but a radish. Um, Radishes just have the ability to burrow their way in and kind of grow under any type of condition. So in a perfect world, if you could overseed in one of those and then roll it or mow it or something um, to kind of just give that overseeded plant a chance to A, get to the soil and B, then perform alongside the clover. But it can work really, really well um, with clover and with other plant varieties too, and then just kind of integrate in some, like you said, some plant varieties that are um, sometimes more more preferred by the hunter or the deer in the fall.
1: Okay. And so we've been talking right now about like a larger type field. Would anything change um, if you were using this in your little transition plot or your your kill plot or or whatever? It depends
2: on the shade talent, like the
1: shade, like a lot of times my, my little backwoods
2: plots, I'll just plant in the spring and then maintain them through the summer. Cause I don't dare till them up in the fall with a lot of shade. Cause I'm afraid that I'm just not going to get the germination or growth that I want. So it depends on really kind of what you're working with from a, um, from a planting environment standpoint. Um, so a lot of times those, those back, those little ones, I, I don't touch again in the fall unless they've got ample amounts of sun, then you can go in and you could overseed into them or you could, you know, rough up some of it with a rake and overseed in, or there's a variety of things to do. I, I always think about couponing gray, not black and white. Like a, you have to do this. You can't do that. It's more or less. Yeah, I would, I would for sure try that because, you know, those radishes are going to take hold or that winter rye or whatever it is. So I'm a, I'm a very gray thinker in that I'm going to try everything, um, even if it's failed and just kind of continue to try different applications to try to help other people in the same scenario. Because like we said, plant variety is critical. Having different plants maturing at different stages is critical. So how can we make that happen? Uh, so shade is really the major barrier when it comes to fall plots of the smaller variety where sometimes we don't want to do much other than Keep that clover and chicory trim or
1: whatever it is. So, from your perspective, and I think your property there, um, you know, four acres, little plots, everything um, that you've kind of outlined would be perfect for a guy starting out. I think that that would be mm-hmm. a typical, yeah. easy type scenario. Um, from that perspective, as far as cost effective, like what are your like, say three or four most valuable tools? So, you know, we think of, okay, a combine is a million dollars or or a, a giant tractor, or, you know, maybe you've got all of these different things and you see the sprayers and the call packers yeah. and all of this stuff, but what is it, you know, dollar for dollar pound for pound, like where is your money made on your property on your plot?
2: Yeah, so my super small area where I, I can't get equipment into already. So I for me, I got a landscaping rake and that's my number one tool. I mean, it's twice as wide as like your standard steel garden rake. And it just has a little bit more backbone to it. It allows you to really get rid of all the debris, but also kind of tear up that top inch or two inches of soil. So landscaping rake is number one. Number two is hand seeder, little itty bitty hand seeder. The reason I say that is everyone wants to use the big bag seeders. And inherently the bag seeders have a larger opening. So people always lose seed, waste seed, spread too much at once. Whereas your little hand seeder allows that seed to be spread more thoroughly without wasting seed. So landscape rake number one, hand seeder number two, And number three is a a variety of, it's a a tool that you could purchase a variety of different options, but some sort of handsaw, whether it's an expandable one or just a standard handsaw, you don't need a big chainsaw to to fell trees for the most part, especially the smaller ones just kind of hold. But those are the three things that I've used to create sun, seed to soil contact, and allow me to seed my plot properly. So all of those together, you're you're under a hundred bucks. Okay. And then if you use write seed varieties, so I'm going to use the term hot chick again, because it's my favorite backwoods, no till hunt plot, throw and grow, whatever you're going to get three. So for 35 bucks, you can plant a half acre. That's going to last you three years. And if you can go in there with a, you know, I, I should have said weed whip or some sort of trimmer too to kind of trim the tops, but um, that's really all you need to do to maintain it. So I mean, you for a very budget friendly, you can you can make it all happen and make it look like you spent thousands of dollars on on all the things and and you've got your clover chicory plot in the woods, you know, nestled below your your tree stand, and you can do it for very very small investment. Um, obviously, your time and your sweat equity are going to be your biggest investment, probably.
1: So I'm just I'm just trying to think of like the the areas that I have and the problems that we've encountered, and one of the things. I guess there's there's two, two main things. One comes from a Patreon. He's talking about um, an area that's super shaded, um, mm-hmm. that's just moss. Whew. And then, like my father, we've got a power line behind his house. And on that power line, there's deer. We've got good deer on camera, all these things, and it's sand.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yep. So... First one, um, super shade moss. Moss grows in shade, so that tells me how dense it is. Um, my question would be, is the shade from pine trees or is it from, you know, leaf growing trees? And B, can you get in there and, and work it up? Because moss typically means more acidic sh- soil and shaded. So if you get in there in the spring and work it up and remove that moss and the debris that's covering the soil, He's going to need some pelleted lime. You can work in there. But again, that that clover-chicory mix of hot chick that we call, it's got a variety of blunts of clover, um, a variety of red, and then chicory. All that are very shade tolerant, very tolerant to acidity, and plant it early in the spring before that dense canopy occurs. Um, that'd be my number one, you know, example there. And then in sand, I grew up in central Wisconsin where the glaciers took all of our topsoil and left all this beautiful blow sand, I call it. And the challenge with sand is that nutrients, water, everything just flows through it so quickly. And you need some really hardy plants to kind of take hold, but over time you can improve it. So buckwheat can be really good in sand, also will improve your soil. Radishes, I've said it a hundred times, but they are probably the number one performer in a sandier area. Um, They're gonna take root, grow deep. They're gonna provide organic matter later on if they die and decay and they're going to pull nutrients into the upper soil, and they don't require a lot of nutrients. So they can handle that. And then, again, that the chicory and blinds. The chicory is probably the hardiest plant that there is. So from a drought tolerance standpoint to a nutrient tolerance standpoint, those plants can work really well together um, to handle sand and, and the typical pitfalls that you have when you're dealing with sand.
1: And in that sand, it's probably just a, a one of those hardy, nasty plants, but it, it's all, if he doesn't do anything to it, it turns into ferns. <laughs> so
2: how, sure. do you, how do you yeah. uh,
1: compete ferns, with that?
2: Ferns, ferns typically tell you that the pH is low. They they typically grow in areas where your pH is acidic and not a lot of other plants will grow in it. So again, test your pH, figure out what it is. It gives you a foundation of what to work with and get some lime in there and try to improve it. And And maybe it's a scenario where, you you start with hot chick because you know that once that gets established you can mow it or trim it those ferns aren't going to like that the, the clover chicory will and then later in the fall come in with your radishes to help buff you know buffer that or uh kind of get it going into fall with a plant that you know can handle sand and you've kind of eliminated some of that fern problem with your, your mowing or your maintenance and improving that ph is going to improve the plants any plant you're going to grow there too but sand is not an end all be all. So often um, people are like, I got sand, I can't grow. That's not true. Um, there's just certain plants that are gonna work better than others. And, and the other thing about sand that is kind of nice is that it'll, sand is easier to improve than like a loam or a darker, like a richer, thicker soil. So you can Im- improve the pH of sand quicker and easier with less lime than you can a more dense type of soil. So there are some, some opportunities there too.
1: Okay. And so uh, we had talked about this at the beginning, uh, you and I, and and we're going to go through this, this list. You've kind of gone through a bunch of them, but like (laughs) do some uh, kind of like word association with uh, these, these types of of plants and like why you would plant them or where you would plant them or, you know, what's the, what's the thought process. So let's start with like a, a winter rye. Anywhere,
2: <laughs> winter rye is—you can plant it from an airplane. It stays green all fall and winter. It's the first thing to green up in the spring. It can provide a ton of deer, high forage, super cheap seed, um, but it can handle diverse, diverse soil conditions. You just have to be careful with it because it'll outgrow a lot of things you'll plant it with. Okay,
1: um, I love winter rye. Along with this, we'll—I'll have you say whether it's an annual or perennial. So, do you got to- and-
2: annual but it'll come back the next spring
1: okay all right so uh beans beans yeah um open sun full sun typically they need equipment plant them in the
2: spring like may time frame they need warm weather um annual but they're they're fantastic for deer if you plant enough of them okay Buckwheat. love it a um it's an annual it can grow virtually anywhere um, I like to plant it in the that May-June time frame. It likes heat, but it's going to provide deer food up until about mid-August. And then it really provides no benefit after that for deer, but it's good for your soil too.
1: Okay. Uh brassica or rape.
2: Yeah, brassicas typically planted in the fall. When I say fall, I mean July and August. They're annuals. However, there are some hybrids that will regrow themselves up to four times in a growing season. So the term brassica is a family of plants. There are hundreds of species below it, and it's the brassica is your big leafy, typical kind of made for TV food plot that we all think about when we think about hunting over, and I, they're the core of kind of how we hunt later in the year, just how they mature. So um, they do need a little bit more sun than some, though. Okay, clover overlooked um, underappreciated it's the foundation of your food plot program because it keeps the fridge full on a year-round basis most of them are perennials there are some annuals um, so you can need to be a little careful there to make sure you're planting what what you want to be planting Um, but they're they're fantastic for your deer and your turkeys your grouse it's the foundation they're also going to be your most soil top or uh, your most Moisture tolerant
1: and shade tolerant of, of your perennials. Um, so there's a hundred different types of clover. Are they all cl- created equal or is there, are there some that are better? They're, they're
2: not. Um, there are yeah, to your point, there's a ton of them and they've all kind of got their own niche. Some of them are tall forage producers. Some of them are, are lower shade tolerant producers. Some of them are red. Some of them are white. Some of them can handle cold. Some handle heat. Um, some are annuals, some are perennials. They're, they're all created differently. And we've kind of hand selected the ones we use to maximize forage growth, uh, ability to grow in shade moisture, heat, uh, ability to mix with others last a long time. So there's a ton of varieties and, and, um, they're not all created equal. Okay. Uh, beets. Oh, I have a love hate relationship with beets. They're an annual, um, they're fantastic for deer, both above ground greens and below ground tap roots, but they're extremely difficult to plant and work with and have a high failure rate. They don't compete well with other plants. They require a, a about perfect pH and a ton of nutrients. So while I love them, they can be extremely difficult to work with. And like I said, have a very high failure rate. Everything's not perfect chicory probably my favorite plant variety next to a radish um planted anywhere planted anytime it's a perennial we typically get three years out of ours shade tolerant drought tolerant heat tolerant high mineral and protein content it cold tolerance um they're incredible i love chicory it's absolutely fantastic i would recommend it to anybody great for first-time food plotters or somebody who's done it for 100 years because your success rate is really high and you're planting a plant that is really, really valuable to your wildlife. Oats. Um, plant in the fall, typically. They're really fast to grow and mature, and palatability and maturity rate encourages attraction. So if you plant them way too early and you don't trim them, you could have some issues with just a hard, a hardy plant that's not as beneficial. They can be trimmed, though, in those scenarios, too. They are an annual Okay. Easy, and then to work, easy to work with and grow. Radishes. Love them. Obviously, I've said the word 157 times in the last hour. Um, they're an annual, and they're, they're good for everything. They're good for your soil. They're good for planting in sandy conditions, um, perfect conditions. They're not as shade tolerant as your clover or chicory. Um, typically, plant them in the latter half of the planting season, so your July or August they grow really rapidly, 40 to 60-day maturity a lot of times. They've got great tap roots, which are full of energy. They've got great green forage production, which is full of protein. So it is probably my favorite plant, regardless of where you live in the U.S., uh, to
1: plant for deer. Awesome. Is there anything that I missed? Or you're like, oh, man, I was really waiting. I heard you say kale, I think.
2: Yeah. So kale, kale is something that is maybe a little newer to food plotting. Um, we eat it in our salads. So it's obviously really good, you know, protein forage, but it's the most cold tolerant brassica. So popular plant in the Northern half of the U S uh, if you plant it, it's going to be darker green than any of your other, your rapes or your radishes, or your turnips, and it, it's going to stay green for a very long time. So it's a, another unique brassica that deer crave, especially as it gets colder and we use it in a bunch of our mixes, but otherwise I think you nailed everything. It's one of those things where you can, like I say, I I like to think about and I would encourage people to think about food plotting in a gray, a gray sense of how you can do it. Because there's a million ways to do it. There's a million ways to do it successfully. And I don't like it when it's a you have to do this and you can't do that scenario. I I like to think about it a lot, a lot differently. I think um, the biggest, most important thing about food plotting is wanting to do it, having that want. Because that's the that's going to drive you to make it happen. Because it's not magic; it takes time, it takes effort. But uh, the luckier, the, what is it? The harder we work, the luckier we get. When it comes to food plotting, that couldn't be more true. And it's also something too that when you put the work in, the time and the effort into something, and you see see it turn into a successful food plot, a successful hunt, it, it really adds a whole another level of gratification to, you know, harvesting a deer and and doing the things that we love to do. It's just a, a whole other element that is much bigger than just planting a food plot. And I think until you do it, you don't, you might not know what I'm, I mean, but once you do it, you'll know. Uh, it's just, it adds a whole other, um level to hunting and and owning a property and, and just kind of doing the things that is just, you can't put a price tag on. So I appreciate having me on here. Hopefully I was semi-helpful and some of the information I passed along. And if your listeners have questions, I'd love to help with, you know, answers and feedback and insight and answer any questions I can. So I I appreciate the time and and having us on to chat about food plots and small properties and kind of getting started and not having a big equipment, but not, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't do it. It, It's just how you're going to do it. So I really enjoy conversations like this and I, I, I really appreciate you having me on.
1: Yeah, no problem. It was super helpful. Uh, where can people, like if they do have questions, where can they get a hold of you or um, what, yeah, what's so the best way? We're very
2: active on Facebook and Instagram, Domain Outdoor LLC. And then we've got our website, DomainOutdoor.com. Uh, a ton of retailers throughout Michigan as well. So that you can find us in. So um, check there. We've got a dealer locator on our website. You can type in your zip code. It'll populate all the dealers near you. They're extremely knowledgeable and um, can help answer your questions too. And we love to we love to help too. So just holler at us.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Hey. Thanks for having me on.